Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Declan O'Gara, a PhD student at the University of Edinburgh. We'll be talking about Declan's experience of the PhD life as a student from a working class background, his research on the provocative moral error theory, and his work running a work in progress seminar. If you'd like to get in touch with Declan, you can DM him on his Twitter account at Declan underscore O'Gara, or email him at s218 4877 at ed.ac.uk. Declan O'Gara, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. So was graduate school something you'd always seen yourself doing? For quite a while. I think I made a choice, especially during my undergraduate, that a lot of people make, which was like between law school and like a PhD. And I decided that law school would be too soul destroying. <laughs> I, th- I think I, I was making a decision between like having a steady income and or like doing something that I know that I'd really enjoy. So I ended up going for the PhD. So for, for a while, it's been like the aim. In the UK, you can do a law conversion like after your PhD. So uh, sorry, after your undergrad. So I was basically choosing between doing a law conversion and a master's. And then, yeah, I made the decision based on like overall quality of life. I think for a while I was like, oh, but you like get paid so much money if you do law. And I thought that I probably wouldn't, like I would regret that when I was older. But yeah, since then, the PhD has been kind of that aim and I haven't really looked back. When you were younger, before, you know, before you're an undergrad, when you're a kid, was growing up and doing a PhD, becoming a doctor in philosophy, something that you'd always seen yourself doing? Or would younger Declan be surprised to see the, the path that you've chosen for yourself? No, I mean, I don't think I had much of a concept of what a PhD was until I was a bit older. I think I was doing philosophy quite a lot when I was young without realizing. So like, my favorite subject at school was like religious education. And like, I went to a Catholic school, but our religious education course was like really philosophy based. And I just didn't realize that then. So I think I at least really liked philosophy for quite a while without knowing that it was philosophy but I don't think I had aspirations to do a PhD until like my undergrad. But I think that was just because people around me weren't doing PhDs. I didn't know loads about what a PhD was. I think I probably just thought it was like a thing that scientists did. Mm. But yeah, I, I don't know if I had much of an idea what I wanted to do at all, to be honest. I think if you'd have asked me like any random week, I would have given a completely different answer. I think for a while I wanted to be a zookeeper. <laughs> and then I realized that that was not a secure job market. <laughs> So zookeeping versus philosophy versus law, how come we ditched zookeeping? Well, I remember Googling zookeeping when I was younger and being like, oh, it's not paid very well. It's quite hard to get a job. So, Like philosophy, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I've, I've it's changed very much uh, from that perspective. <laughs> I see. Yeah, fair enough. And you, you mentioned that you didn't have people doing PhDs around you. Like, what do you mean by that? So were people just not really interested in PhDs or just people kind of around like where you grew up, they just weren't uh, doing sort of academic philosophy as much? Like, yeah, what were, like, I guess, the sort of influences that made that the case? Yeah, so I think from the area I'm from, a lot of people, like there are people now who are going to uni, uh, like first generation. I'm not from like a particularly like bad off area, but it's not like a really affluent area. Like there's a, especially my family. So it's like first, everyone's first generation so it's not like there's people around doing PhDs. And 
if you just don't know that's an option, it's just not something that you're going to think about. I think I've had a lot of encouragement to do stuff. So I, I, especially when I got to college, there were a lot of, I went to quite a good college. I was quite lucky. I know people there that would encourage you to go to uni and like talk to you about your different options. But yeah, I think if you have people in your family that have done a PhD before, you're going to see it as like a live option and you're going to have some like advice there. But if not, you've kind of got to throw yourself out there and just like hope that you get lucky and get some information from other people that you kind of happen to like cross paths with. Hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic that you had that encouragement going to university. When you did enroll as an undergraduate at the University of Manchester, did you feel there was anything distinctive about your experience in virtue of being a a first generation uh, university student? Yeah, so I think that you kind of go in not really knowing what to expect. I think you kind of, you need to grab it like a bit more by the horns than like try and like get to know people in the department, try and get people to give you advice, especially for like career career advice. I think that for me, it was helpful because like my older sibling uh, had been to uni. So I had some kind of, it wasn't like I was the first person going down that path. But certainly I think making sure that I spoke to people in the department and like had some like older heads that could give me advice was like important. And yeah, if you're you're not a first generation, then you might have like people in your family that can just like do that already. Yeah. Although I would say, so my my mom especially was like very much like you need to go to university. So I had the kind of encouragement, which I think was very helpful. But yeah, I think just being more proactive is like a thing that you'll notice that you have to do. And then especially if you end up doing a PhD. Right. So you're alluding there to how you've um, progressed, obviously, from your undergraduate studies, from your master's, now to your PhD studies, which are going on in the University of Edinburgh. Um, You're pursuing a research topic, which is close to my heart, close to my own um, Mm. research interest as well, which is the moral error theory. So for listeners who haven't been exposed or don't have a, a deep understanding of what this view is, to begin then, what is the moral error theory? Yeah, so error theory is kind of one of the major positions in metaethics it's kind of a conjunction of two claims so there's a metaphysical claim and an ontological claim so it's firstly the claim that moral discourse is committed to certain kinds of properties so usually it's categorized as irreducibly normative properties so if moral facts exist then they would be irreducibly normative and then there's the ontological claim which is that those facts are weird in some way we can't fit them in, into a naturalist worldview, so we have to reject them. So essentially, the claim is that moral discourse is committed to the existence of some properties that don't exist. So it's an error. So, I mean, let's let, let's want to get some examples. So I guess moral claims like lying is wrong, killing is wrong. So the thought is like, so I describe what's going on with killing, I describe what's going on with stealing, and the property that it has that we assign to it is like wrongness, or, and then in the case of like maybe donating to charity is rightness. And it seems like that is the sort of thing that we do with moral discourse. Like we're, I mm-hmm. guess like a lot of people would say like, when I say stealing is wrong, like I am saying something true about that state of affairs. So why are those people wrong? What's the thought behind that? Yeah, so I guess the thought is when you get to thinking about what it would have to be the case, to be for those claims to be true or false then like when you get to the metaphysical level kind of there's reasons to think that the kinds of facts that are involved that would be irreducibly normative facts so they're not like normal facts they're facts that are value laden in a way that they seem quite different from normal facts that we posit and because they're kind of different we posit they're irreducibly normative so you can't boil them down to any non-normative facts mm-hmm. and because of that they're 
kind of non-natural. So they're not, they're kind of like platonic facts, that kind of thing. And because they're non-natural, they don't fit very well into a naturalist worldview. And that's why we reject them. So it's when you kind of think about what it would have to be the case for those kind of statements to be true or false. Mm, that's that's really interesting. If I can just ask one more, I guess, follow up. I guess you describe the the moral facts as kind of like different from a lot of other things. And then at some point you were saying that it's sort of non-natural. So I guess another example mm-hmm. of like a non-natural thing would probably be a number. I guess if you're right, does that mean I should also maybe not believe in numbers? And also, I mean, the fact that two, like like some things are different to one another doesn't seem necessarily to count against their existence, right? So I guess, yeah. What's the motivating thought behind those two, I guess, kinds of like criticisms you'd raise about moral facts that you seem to raise earlier? Yeah. So on the first question, that's actually quite related to the kind of research that I do. So a common way of coming kind of at uh, moral error theory is by saying that this like extends to other areas. So if you say like, okay, I reject moral facts because they're irreducibly normative and there's something wrong with irreducibly normative facts. And then you point to some other kind of fact, which seems to also kind of share some of the same metaphysical commitments, but you wouldn't want to reject. Then you can kind of, by analogy, say that there's something wrong with the moral error theory. So numbers don't share all of those properties. They're not necessarily normative, but there is a kind of an argument that people make where kind of, they at least seem to be metaphysically strange. Numbers aren't a great candidate just because there's a lot of different stuff happening with numbers particularly. So kind of indispensability arguments that are made in the philosophy of maths just don't necessarily apply to moral facts. So we have reasons to think that numbers are indispensable to the sciences. And because of that, kind of, we can justify bringing them into our ontology, like, by that. I don't don't necessarily buy into those arguments, but it's a, a different thing happening with numbers than happens with moral facts. So that's like a Putnam's, like, indispensability argument. But then there's other kinds of facts which seem to be a lot closer. So epistemic facts are the ones that are normally talked about. So epistemic facts seem to be reducibly normative, seem to kind of be committed to the same kind of properties. So it might be the case that if you're a moral error theorist, you also need to be an epistemic error theorist. That's a companions and guilt argument. So that's what I kind of work on. Right. So the thought then is that, yeah, there there might be other kinds of facts, uh, epistemic facts, um, maybe Mm -hmm. prudential facts as well, Mm -hmm. um, facts that we don't seem to be able to reduce them to kind of natural facts, to things that we can point at in the real world and say, hey, that's what's going on. They seem to have some irreducibly normative element. And a thought then is that, yeah, there's something weird about that irreducibility. So maybe these things don't exist at all. Maybe nothing's morally right. Nothing's morally wrong. The same goes for the epistemic domain, same goes for the prudential domain. But you mentioned, right, so you've got these companions and guilt arguments that say, hey, we know that epistemic facts are out there. If they're irreducibly normative, then maybe we can have irreducibly normative moral facts as well. What's your response to these kinds of arguments? Do you say, hey, this shows the moral error theory must be wrong? Or do you say, well, maybe we should be error theoretic about other domains as well? Yeah, so there's kind of two main lines of response. I should say, as you kind of pointed out, I mainly work on prudential companions and guilt. That's kind of a newer version of the companions and guilt argument that's not received loads of attention. But we're in both cases, you can basically either say these other kinds of facts that are reducible, so they're not committed to the same kind of properties as moral facts. So with epistemic facts, often the way that that goes is you say, look, 
Epistemic facts are just kind of reducible to elective properties, so properties about true belief. So if you're committed to kind of like a, a naturalist picture of epistemology, like maybe like a Quanian view, you can kind of you can try and say that look, epistemology just isn't committed to the same kind of weird properties as like moral discourse. And then the other way of going is just by saying, look, we can just be an epistemic error theorist. The epistemic error theory isn't as bad as it seems. Kind of people like Bart Strumer have made this kind of argument, although Bart Strumer's view is like quite strange. So you can make these kinds of arguments. Also, uh, Jonas Olsen has tried to make this kind of argument. So you can try and kind of show that the epistemic error theory isn't as bad as it first looks. Because at first, it looks really implausible. Because if the epistemic error theory is true, you have no reasons for belief. If you have no reasons for belief, you have no reasons to believe in the epistemic error theory. So like at first, it just looks like bonkers. And it just doesn't look like the kind of view that you want to be committed to. So you have to show why that isn't necessarily the case. And the same options are open in the prudential case. Okay, great. So this seems like a means then by which we can rescue epistemic facts and prudential facts. We can give them this naturalist reduction. We can reduce them to simply natural facts, facts that are out there in the world. And we needn't then be error theorists about the epistemic and prudential domain. Fine. But if we move to the moral domain again for a moment, to the moral error theory... Why is it that we can't do the same thing with moral facts? Why is it that moral facts are something that for which we can't give a naturalist reduction? You know, and to give an example, what would be wrong with saying maybe moral rightness simply is the maximization of uh, pleasure over pain? What would be wrong with that kind of view? Yeah, so I think there's a few things to say to that. So and kind of this is kind of how I think about philosophy anyway. A lot of it is based on just like my base level intuition. So you have to start with an intuition. And for me in this case, it's just that moral facts just seem just uh, like too different from other kinds of facts. So they don't seem like other kinds of natural facts. They seem like a completely different thing. And then once you've got that intuition, then you start thinking about the arguments that are involved there. And like that's going to shape which arguments you're attracted to and which, you, which ones you find convincing. And with like naturalist realist positions in metaethics, which is the kind of positions that we're talking about, there's a few arguments against those kind of positions. So the open question argument is one of the major arguments that levied against the, those positions. So if you have any reduction of kind of moral facts, so to pleasure, the open question argument says that if that reduction works, it will be a closed question whether goodness just was the maximization of pleasure. But if you ask the question, okay, this is good, but is it or is it pleasurable or does it maximize pleasure? It seems as though that's an open question. It's not the same as saying, okay, this is good, but is it good? And if it was the case that they just did reduce to, uh, sorry, if goodness did just reduce to pleasure, it would be the same as asking like, okay, is this good, but is it good? Uh, oh, this is good, but is it good? So there's that kind of argument. And then for newer versions of, naturalism so especially cornell uh, realism there's moral twin earth arguments which are like a newer version of the open question argument where it basically says that if we can have these other kinds of reductions um, to natural properties like the cornell realist, realist try to posit we can imagine an earth so say if on our earth moral facts reduced to facts about pleasure we can imagine a twin earth where moral facts reduced to something else, so reduced to deontological properties. If it was the case that what it was to be uh, morally good was just to maximize pleasure, 
you would imagine that the discourse on the twin earth would just be something else. It wouldn't be a moral discourse. It'd be some other kind of discourse. Now, this argument goes, this is from Horgan and Timmons. They're the people that propose this argument. It seems as though what's actually happening is they're just having like a first order disagreement. And there's something else in the background that is kind of separate from this talk about pleasure or talk about deontological properties. And there's something else which kind of makes the facts true or false. And if they were to meet, so if if the twin earthlings and the earthlings were to meet, it would be that they would have, have disagreements about moral questions. It wouldn't be the fact, case that they're just talking past each other. And if moral facts just reduced to pleasure, they would just be talking past each other because they'd be involved in two completely different discourses because we're saying that moral facts just reduced to pleasure. So... There's a number of other arguments kind of that motivate this view. And like I say, most of it is just motivated on the intuition that they just seem too different. And these are the kind of arguments that used to bolster that view. I will say that I think that my rejection of moral naturalism is my the part of metaethics that I'm least confident about. So I'm quite confident that expressivism or quasi-realism isn't true. I don't think it captures moral discourse very well. I'm quite confident that moral non-naturalism isn't true. I think the metaphysics is too weird. Uh, I think naturalism is the one that I've thought about the least and it's the one that I question the most. Well, you've given what to my ears sounds like a compelling defence of the moral error theory. Is this something that most philosophers would agree with? Is this a, a popular or orthodox view in the literature? Or do you see yourself as going against the grain and doing something a bit different here? It's hard to say. I think I'm in a bit of a bubble where I only talk to error theorists or non-naturalists. And non-naturalists tend to be slightly sympathetic to the error theory because we agree about everything except from the metaphysics. So in that debate, it's like not necessarily seen as like a crazy view. I think that it's not massively popular. I think it's more popular than it was. And often when I speak to just non-metaphysists, they're reasonably sympathetic. But I think yeah, so some, sometimes there's certain meta-ethical debates that aren't purely between non-naturalists and um, error theorists. I think it would be seen as more of a kind of out-there view that was just kind of like a sceptical view of morality that didn't really make sense, especially because it's committed to just like weird claims. So weird first-order claims that like the claim that torture is wrong isn't true. It's just a weird first-order claim. And a lot of people will just reject it for that. So that's just like one of the bullets that erythorists have to bite. But for some people, it's just like, no, that's clearly ridiculous. We clearly have some moral claims that have to be true. And if your theory just denies those, then the theory just isn't worth considering. But yeah, I think there's definitely a reasonable amount of people working on it at the moment. So Bart Strumer, who I mentioned before, Jonas Olsen, and then Chris Cowie, Wuta Kauf. So there's quite a few people that are working on it. Quite a lot of interesting stuff happening in the Companions and Guilt literature and specific, like specifically, that's where a lot of the debates between non-naturalists and error theorists happen. Also, there's a literature on moral fixed points that I'm like just getting into the past few days, and that's kind of interacts with the error theory. So there's a lot of interesting things happening. And like non-naturalism, which is like the main opponent of error theory, has received like a bit of a kind of uplift in the literature the last 15 years or so. So I think that that debate has kind of ignited a bit of a kind of revival of both. Okay, so 
I mean, Lewis seems more sympathetic to the error theory view than I am. And I think apparently, according to some Phil paper surveys, like 65% of philosophers are moral realists. So that's, that's an interesting result, I guess, just in terms of, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, are there lots of people, are there a lot of people who defend this view or, you know, what's it looking like in the literature? But I guess to turn to one of those weird implications, you said, you know, you can't like torture is wrong is not really a thing that can be made sense of, at least um, according to Aretheus, it doesn't seem like that's, that, that's tracking a truth, uh, which a lot of people would seem to think it is. Could we just say that maybe what's going wrong here is if, you know, if error theory commits us to this, we should revisit the error theory's rejection of moral facts. And maybe what's going on is we've just not really understood the nature of moral facts. You know, maybe the, the thing that we we're claiming was an error wasn't the moral facts, but the kind of conception we had of them. And we should, you know, revisit and try to think about what they are harder before throwing them all out. What do you think about that thought? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things to say. So one thing is a lot of metaethicists share the same conception of moral facts. So the conception of moral facts isn't just the conception that error theorists are committed to. It's conception that non-naturalists are also committed to. And they make up a reasonable portion of the people in the literature. So, for example, David Enoch has basically the same view of semantics as i do he's just happy with weird like metaphysical things um, i don't know if he would call them weird <laughs> but I, i'm not so that's the first thing to say it's not that it's just us that are committed to these kind of weird uh, oh sorry this conception of moral facts as being kind of irreducibly normative a lot of people have that commitment obviously naturalists really don't like i said before i think there are reasons to think that that conception is right and i think that's just because I don't think that other kinds of anti-realists capture moral discourse very well. I don't think that naturalism is particularly convincing. Maybe I could be convinced otherwise about naturalism, but I, just, I don't think that it gets over the kind of open question worries, the kind of twin earth worries that I'm, mm. I've kind of been persuaded by. The other thing to say about this kind of response, and this is like a very normal response, and it's the kind of response that you'll receive quite a lot, which is, Look, if your view says that torture is wrong isn't true, it's just it, it's implausible. Hmm. Which is why I think that error theorists need to have a, a stronger argument than just moral facts seem weird, so let's get rid of them. Mm -hmm. I think they also need to have something like debunking arguments. So if you're not familiar, debunking arguments are essentially often put uh, with like evolution. So it seems the case that it'd be evolutionarily beneficial for us to have a moral discourse which was kind of committed to the kind of claims that we usually make in moral discourse. So, for example, was thinking murder is wrong just seems beneficial evolutionarily because we're not going to kill each other and that's better for our survival as a species. So we have all of these things which could plausibly be adaptive beliefs. So they don't necessarily need to be true beliefs. They could just be mm -hmm. adaptive um, mm -hmm. in that they help our survival. And if moral discourse seems like it would help our survival, there's no reason to then think that it's also truth tracking. It would be, be very kind of lucky if it was truth tracking and adaptive. So I'm not the way that I've laid it out there, I'm not saying that that's necessarily like, like the best way of laying out the kind of debunking arguments, but you need to have something like that, which explains why the discourse is an error. So you can't just say that it's an error because that's ascribing a massive error to large swathes of the population, 
without much of a justification. And then it's just going to be very easy to say, well, you've just misunderstood moral facts. They're not committed to the kinds of things that you're saying they are. Mm-hmm. But if you can say, look, this is why moral discourse is an error, then it starts to look more plausible because you can say why people make these kinds of claims. I'm about to write a chapter um, of my PhD where I kind of go back to basics a bit more and try to offer some arguments for the error theory. I've mainly been concerned with companions and guilt stuff up to now, but I realized like to start my PhD, I need to have some arguments for the error theory. And one of the arguments that I want to make is in this kind of area. So I think that something that error theory should do instead of saying like, okay, it's just evolution. I think you can actually adopt a view where you're saying there's like loads of things which would make our discourse seem objective and seem to be committed to kind of weird properties. So, for example, Anscombe has a paper where she basically says our moral discourse is committed to like some kind of religious view. That's why it has so much authority. And now that we've all decided to be atheists, she wrote this in like the 50s, we need to change our meta ethics. And I think that that's plausible in some way. I think that you can paint a picture there of like, look, we've we had kind of religion in most societies for a long time and still do. And that would at least make sense of some of the reasons why our moral discourse seems to like have a certain kind of authority, why it seems to have a certain kind of prescriptivity. And I think if you combine that with the evolutionary stuff and maybe some kind of societal stuff, you can start to paint a picture why we would have a moral discourse which looks like it does but which isn't necessarily truth tracking. It just looks like it would be truth tracking. So I think that you need to combine arguments from queerness, other kind of motivations for the error theory with explanations of why moral discourse is an error. And then you start to be able to answer these kind of worries. And I, I think, yeah, the error theorists need to do that more often. Yeah, that, that sounds like a promising strategy because I guess it's always going to be a big hurdle for the error theorists to explain why torturing innocent babies for fun is actually not morally wrong. But anyway, moving on to some of the other stuff you've been doing during your PhD as well, besides the research, you said you've also been convening the Work in Progress seminar in Edinburgh. Um, so I gather that you know lots of different graduate programs have something like this um, that works in slightly different ways. Uh, what's this looking like in Edinburgh? Yeah, so this already existed when I started. So I, I'm not sure how long it was going back. I know at least like three or four people that have run it before me. So it's been going for at least a few generations of PhD students. Essentially, the Work in Progress seminar is a thing that we do every semester. We're actually also looking at doing it in the summer as well, where PhD students can come and present something from their PhD and present it to the other PhD students in quite a low-pressure situation where we can offer advice, they can get practice, present in, especially if they're like a first-year PhD student who hasn't been into any conferences yet. And also they can get feedback in an environment where they're not like speaking to people that are already got jobs that like they might feel a bit of pressure. They're just speaking to people that they hang around with all the time. It's going to be like quite productive and they are quite productive if people get quite good feedback. Yeah. And it's a good way to like find out what other people are doing. So to find out what the people in the community are doing, what everyone's research is. And it's like a nice excuse for like all the PhD students to get together. I think some PhD communities get quite like isolated and quite clicky Mm. and things like this are very helpful for like creating a sense of community Mm. having as many events as possible where like a lot of people get together is like very conducive to create like the nice phd environment that you want and yeah i think the work in progress seminar is a thing that every phd like community should have 
is the emphasis of these work in progress seminars essentially to help you improve your work and make it in a better position to sit in your PhD thesis? Or is this, you know, you're pitching papers very much with the idea of trying to get those published in academic journals. And this is the sort of like stage just before you submit is you've been working on this for a while and then you get the feedback and then you submit. How does, yeah, how does it work really? Is that, are the norms kind of, did they just vary? Yeah, there's a lot of variance. So I think what we encourage is, I, I say, wait, it's just me running it. Normally there's... <laughs> But yeah, it's just me running it this year. So essentially, we encourage people to bring stuff that's like quite half-baked. So like maybe stuff that they're writing at the moment, stuff they're not sure about. Because that they're the most productive because you can get like actual feedback that you can then put into practice. But sometimes people will bring stuff where they're like, I'm going to present at this a conference. So I'd like to have like a trial run. You can tell me if there's anything in here that's like ridiculous or that needs to be changed. But in terms of like whether it's for papers or for the thesis, I don't know if this is common or the UK program. So there's not much of a distinction at Edinburgh between the two. Most people are kind of writing both at the same time. So like individual chapters are the kind of things that you'll be turning into a paper. I mean, that's at least how I'm writing my PhD. So often, if you get advice for your thesis, you're also getting advice for the papers. But yeah, it's kind of what people make of it, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the uh, final question I'll, I'll have on, on that matter is, um, yeah, well, why you actually go about convening it? I mean, I guess it sounds like a lot of work. Is this, I guess, an act of service to the department? Someone's got to do it, so you'll take on that burden? Or has it been something that you've actually uh, quite enjoyed and, and found enriching in certain ways? Yeah, I mean, I really enjoy running it. I think that, especially after my first year, I was already someone that was reasonably like kind of connected in the PhD community. So I was friends with a few people. It made sense for like me or one of my pals to run it. The people running it last year were people that I was friends with, so they kind of convinced me to do it. But I, I've really, I've really enjoyed it. I've not found it to be too time consuming. I, I would go to all the seminars anyway. So it's not like I'm having to take loads of time out of my day to do something I was already kind of doing. I just have to chair the talks. And it's just good to get experience of running seminars. It's kind of like running conferences. It's a thing that you'll have to do if you go into the academic job market, which I plan to do. So it's a good thing to get experience of. It's good for your CV to have done something like this. And you get to experience loads of things. So like I have to speak to people, I have to get people to sign up, which is a thing that I'll have to do in the future. I have to like try and get funding for the seminar. So like, I deal with that kind of thing. So it's just good experience all around, to be honest. And I, I just really enjoy it. I've not had any problems with that. I think I'm probably going to carry on doing it next year, although I might might try and convince someone else to do it with me. But yeah, I, I just really enjoy them. They're like one of the best things about semester time because you get to see like everyone in one place. You get to hear what someone's doing right now. And so yeah, I just I enjoy doing it. And I think it's beneficial in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like it's beneficial in those ways. We have something like that in Oxford that I've benefited from tremendously, and I know Lewis has, and all the members of our cohort. So yeah, definitely keep it up. And I'll just say, Declan, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.